Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, we're going to open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to cover a whole six set of verses here. Uh, we're going to look at the crossing of the Jordan River because now they're there and now they are going to cross. Now, let me, let me just share with you just for the sake of helping somebody here. Um, when I came to this section of scripture and um, I've actually like, I'm, out, I'm usually up three, I've already typed out three messages on this. Three, I'm actually four up right now. And so um, when I came to this section, you know, I did all my due diligence. I, I read the commentaries. Now, I don't read a bunch of commentaries because if you read too many commentaries, you start going in too many different directions. So you want to keep it, and you already have your own thoughts on the whole thing because you've studied it for so many years. Um, but every time I read and I read, I go, I just couldn't come up with this idea, the main idea that, that I think the text was, or the Spirit wanted to speak to me. And, and so I was just reading it again and reading it again and had the commentaries, I like reading it again. And then... As I read it, then it started to jump out at me, this whole idea of what I'm going to talk on tonight within the context of crossing the Jordan River. I started to notice the contrast and the comparisons between the crossing of the Jordan River and the Red Sea parting and the crossing right there, and all the salvation imagery of this text. And it just started to really pop and really jump out at me, and um, and I thought, okay, this is the direction. I remember, and, and this is why I'm saying this, there's that time when Jesus is, um, he's, he gives the parable of the sower and the seed. We know the parable, right? And once he says the first part before explanation, the disciples come up to him and they say, you know, why do you speak in parables? They ask him questions, right? And they get up close and personal. And Jesus, in that moment, he says to them, he says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to, to others, no. And you, when you, what you draw from that is this is that any one of us, because as a born-again believer, we have the Spirit of God living in us. So any one of us, if we spend time really going over this and reading a text and reading a text and reading a text, it will begin to pop at a certain moment. Any amens on that? Because you and I have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And so you don't have to sit there and just stay surface on it. If you start really reading it and reading it and asking and always ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to you it'll start to reveal to you because you are not a natural thinker you're a spiritual thinker and I like stuff like that because you see the longer you're Christian the more you realize that the scriptures they're inexhaustible has anybody noticed that yet I mean it's inexhaustible and uh, even Sunday in the message I, I think I forgot to say it in first service I think I said it in second but I could be wrong on one of those but I had never thought this thought before, and I wrote it down uh, the day before, or maybe it was Friday, because I start to memorize on Friday morning. I, me I read it for the first time after three weeks, Friday morning. I read it again before bed, Friday night. Then Saturday morning, I'll go to the coffee shop, read it twice. Then I'll, start to I'll, 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 I'll be talking it to myself, and people think I'm weird in the coffee shop because I'm talking to them, you know, I'm keeping it. And then I, I'm thinking it all day and thinking it all day, and then I'll go out on Saturday at about, 6.30, and I'll, I'll either sit in my front yard or sit in my backyard, and I'll start, I want to know if I can remember everything, and I'll say the whole thing to myself. 
And by then I know I've got it down. And then, of course, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, I wake up in the shower. I'm saying it to myself as I'm washing my hair, and I'm getting it down. I'm getting down. But on Friday, I don't know why I told you the whole repertoire of why I do that. <laughs> but um, but that's, what, that's how my life works. But this one thought popped in my head on Friday and Saturday when I was going over it, and I'd never thought this thought before on that text. And I probably taught that text in my lifetime, I guarantee probably 10, 15 times because it's a real well-known text, popular for forgiveness. But I never thought this before and I, I, whatever service it was in when I said it. And I said, you, if you think about the man who's been forgiven 200,000 years of, uh, of debt, uh, in, in, of sin in a sense, because the, the king is a picture of God. And then he turns around to the man and he, who, and he doesn't want to forgive him 100 days of debt. And, if, and I never thought this before. I thought, that is so true. That the reason why it's 200,000 years of debt to the king, the king's a picture of God, is because, and I said it, I said it like this, I said, because all sin is sin against God. Every sin that we commit, if I sin against you, if I sin against, it's still a sin against God. So when it comes to the king, it's the accumulation of all of our sins in our entire life. And it's, a, it's an enormous amount. But then we turn around to, to one person, and they may have sinned against us a few times. That's why it's like a hundred denarii right there. And that's just that particular person's sin, even though those sins they've sinned against me are still against God. But when it relates to me only, it's just a few sins this way. Does that make sense? And I never, ever looked at it that way. But the more you think about these things and the more you sit on them, it just begins to pop. It just begins to explode in your head. And when you do that, start to write things down. Do it. Now, I'm a person, if you ever look in my Bible, it's a nightmare in there. I've written so many things down in there that I, I want to remember. And that's why sometimes when I'm talking, turning to a text and I say things, you guys think I can remember everything. Oh, no, I have it written right there. You guys think I'm real smart. No, I'm just smart enough to know to write it there. And it'll look like I'm really smart to everybody, okay? But it'll begin to pop in your head. So today, we're going to look at these ideas of the contrast, comparisons of the parting of the Red Sea, the passing there, and the Jordan River, and all the salvation imagery. So here we go, verse 11, verse 12, say this. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. Now, the, the what of it is Joshua is uh, telling them, here's how it's going to roll out. Here's what you're, you're going to be doing here. And he says, the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to be taking that, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. I love when he says Lord of all the earth, because remember, and I'll rehearse it with you, that all the false gods, and they're all, God's our only true God, but all false gods are usually and typically always based on something of earth a human, an animal, or something in the universe, and you know God's the creator of it all, the sun, the Nile River, but our God is over all of it, and never forget that. He's the God of the whole slam. But atheists will try to say, your God is just, you just added him to the list of all the false gods. No, our God's the God, the creator, the God of the whole slam. Amen to that one? And so he's telling them these things, and he says, the ark is going to go over ahead of you. And he also tells them that you're to take 12 guys here. Now, the 12 guys we're going to find out are very important, not tonight, but they're very important in, a, in, in, in the near future here. Now, you've got to remember also that these people, 
that they have never, they, they are not the people that saw the Red Sea part. Only Caleb and Joshua saw that. That whole generation has died off. This is all new. So they don't have the faith and, and evidence experience of knowing that God can part seas and part rivers. So here they come into this thing. Now, verse 13, it says, It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. I'm going to give you three contrasts, really four, but the fourth one will be a point. It's not in your notes. These are just contrasts as I studied out. Now, first contrast is this. At the Red Sea, and I think we talked about this two weeks ago, but at the Red Sea, Moses holds up his staff, east wind blows, and it parts the Red Sea. Remember that? But here, at the Jordan River, it's going to be a whole different prescription. What's going to happen here is they're going to carry the ark, and then once they step into the water, then the waters are going to start to back up, and these waters that were here are going to go downstream to the, to the Dead Sea. And so we said before, and I'll say it again in the contrast of what happened at the Red Sea versus here is this, that at the Red Sea, it's the immature faith that God's going to do everything for you. God's going to part the sea. But there comes a moment in our life when we have to step into the water like at the Jordan River. There comes a moment when you can't just sit there and pray, God, do this. No, you've got to step into something. You've got to take a step forward in something. And this is really a big difference between you, whether you're going to experience some great thing in God in your life, or you're just going to sit there and pray and miss it as it goes by. But mature faith knows it must take steps. New faith doesn't know that. So God has to do all those things for them. And that's a contrast right here. Now, contrast number two. At the Red Sea, when that's parted, they were all, there was a lot of unbelief. There was a lot of murmuring. There was a lot of complaining. At the Jordan River, you don't see that. At the Jordan River, you see people who are obedient and you see people who have great faith and they know their God is going to do this. Now, let me say something about murmuring, complaining, and griping. Anybody good at that? Okay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, gives this, Paul is telling us something. And Paul's going back in time and he's, he's covering certain events throughout the Old Testament as they were traveling to the desert. He's telling us the different events and how these people never made it into the promised land. And one of the events that he covers that he says a reason of the four or five that he shares is that they complained and they grumbled. And because they complained and they grumbled, they never walked in everything God had for them. And it's very important that we watch out for those things because it's really easy to complain, is it not? It's easy to complain against the church, pastor, people, this, that ministry. It's easy to complain. You don't want to do that because you're sabotaging your own spiritual best that God has for you in your life. So you watch those things. And by the way, have you ever studied on real successful people some of the qualities of successful people? Successful people, they don't gripe and complain. They are people who, who create solutions. And that's a big difference right there. And you want to be that type of person. Now, the third contrast is this. 
Here in, in the Jordan River, we're going to find out that they're going to have 12 stones and they're going to leave 12 stones in the water. You'll see that in your future. But as a memorial. But at the Red Sea, when it parts and then closes, is there a memorial left there? Well, kind of, yeah. Okay, I just set you up on that one. Because after the Red Sea comes back again, what floats onto the shoreline? The dead bodies of the Egyptian soldiers. And so there's a memorial there of the power of God. And right here at the Jordan River, there's a memorial in the water of the power of God that God parts this thing. And that God did that. So it's another contrast. So here we go. The fourth contrast, which is point one in your notes, if you're taking notes, and that's this. We have been transferred from darkness to light. We've been transferred from darkness to light. Now, what I want you to do is keep your marker here and look at Exodus chapter 14. Let's go back to the parting of the Red Sea because remember I said there's contrasts and there's comparisons between the two. I want to show you something right here when it, when it uh, pertains to transfer from darkness to light. Let me show you something. When you're in Exodus 14, say I'm there. Now look at verse 21. Then Moses stretched out the hand, his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. What time of day is this happening? Louder? It's at nighttime. Okay. So they're leaving Egypt in the night. Think about that. They're leaving Egyptian slavery in the night. Okay, let's go back to Joshua. Joshua chapter 3, we're in chapter, but look at verse 1 of chapter 3, when they're going to cross this river. Then Joshua rose when? Early in the morning. What time of the day is that? It's daylight, right? So they leave Egypt in the what? In the darkness, and they're leaving the bondage behind, right? And they're crossing into the promised land in the light. And they're coming into that light of that promised land. Now, let me piece it together more for you. Marker here, turn to New Testament Colossians. This is a very important theological understanding for you of what happened to you and I when we became born-again believers and placed our faith in Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, if you're there, say, I'm there. Still here a few pages uh, turning. It's right after Genesis, and you're there, man. I'm joking, I'm joking. It's in the middle of the New Testament. Now, Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14 says this, watch. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Oh, okay, darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's really interesting terminologies here because when we got saved, he rescued us from a domain of what again? Darkness. And domain means power and authority. So just like they were delivered from the power and the authority of Pharaoh and the taskmasters from the bondage, you and I, the parallel is when you and I became Christians through the blood of Jesus, we're delivered from that domain and that power of darkness. Any amens? Now, in the transfer, because we've been transferred, not to a department, but to a whole new realm, that's why you and I feel at times like, I don't belong on planet Earth. I'm a stranger and alien here. Anyone ever feel that? 
You've been transferred to another realm, and that's the kingdom of darkness. And the word kingdom there means a royal power and a dominion. So we're in a royal power of the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? So at the moment of salvation, something happened in us where we were transferred from darkness, just like they were when they left Egypt, and we come into light like Joshua heads in the promised land in the daylight. Amen to that one? Now, with that said, let me, let me share with you one of the things that that means. Satan has no power over you. Please don't ever say, oh, the devil's out to get me. Stop. Stop it. Don't give him any power. You've been transferred. Because if you remember when Jesus is standing there before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate, who has a lot of authority under the Roman Empire, he's the governor of Judea, and Pilate says to Jesus, because Jesus is not cooperating, he says, don't you know I have the authority to crucify you? Or the authority to set you free? What does Jesus tell him? You would have no authority over me unless it was given you from above. Man, boom, right back at him. Can you imagine Pilate's face at that one? He'd never heard that one before. But what's Jesus saying? He says, I'm not part of your realm. I'm not part of your little kingdom game here. I'm from a whole other dimension. I'm from another kingdom. The enemy has no authority over you and I. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been set free. The darkness has passed, and we walk in new light. Do you remember the moment you were saved when you opened up your eyes from the prayer or whatever, and you just kind of knew things were different? Anybody know what I mean? It's because now you have the Spirit of God in you. You were delivered from that old way of life, and you're this new person now walking in light. Now, let's move on, or I'm going to run out of time here. Now, let's go back to Josh, because I'll, I'll just get off on that one and keep going. Verse 14. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark, verse 15, came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. Now, remember, this is flood season. This is April. This is the Jordan swelling up, a lot of water. Typically, the Jordan is about 100 feet wide, very calm moving river. You're baptized in the Jordan River. You've seen it. But at flood season, it overflows its banks. It's a lot of water. It's carrying all the tributes. All the tributaries are pouring into it, and it's just cranking, and in some places, it gets up to a mile wide. I've never seen that, but I've read that multiple times, that it gets that way. Now, think about that whole picture there. If you're there at flood season, and, and typically it's you know this wide, but now it's a massive rushing river. Now, think about it. That's an impassable divide, is it not? You're not going to get by this. It's just too big. Why does God bring them there at that time? Multiple reasons. But the first one, and obvious one, is this, is that they cannot pass on their own power. They will never get from here to there on their own power. God has to do something. He's got to do something with this massive divide that they cannot cross. And that's why God has them to show the powerlessness of their position and our powerlessness of trying to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. 
God had to do it. Now, point two. Let's do it. Let's go off that one. A massive divide must be divided. A massive divide must be divided. The massive divide for them is the, is the river. And here's the comparisons and the imagery. The massive divide for us is called sin, is it not? Someone had to divide the divider so we could g- get in. Okay, who's going in first in the water? The priest, what are they carrying? The priest going in first, carrying the water. They're carrying the ark. The ark's going in first. Once the ark goes in, water's going to start to part. The ark. What's the ark? The ark is the place where they'd sprinkle the blood once a year. And that blood on, that, on the lid of that would atone for the people. Atone. And not, it didn't wash away sin. It didn't cleanse sin. It covered sin for one year. Just covered it. The literal idea is that God winked at sin. He closed his eye to it for one year. But he couldn't wash away sins because animal blood cannot atone for humans. It had to be a human. And the God-man, Jesus Christ, has to come. So this ark is leading the way. And once the ark goes in the water, that thing is going to divide. Now let me take you a little further in that. Have you ever wondered this question, what happened to people before Jesus, what happened to people who believed before Jesus ever came? Anyone ever wonder that question right there? Nobody? Yeah? Okay, good, because I won't take it if you don't want to know. Keep your marker right here. Turn to Luke chapter 16, and then we're going to talk more on this whole idea of what I'm bringing forth here. Luke 16. We're going to cover about seven, eight verses, something like that. Now watch this. Verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Sounds like a good life, right? And a poor man named Lazarus stopped, not the Lazarus who dies and is brought back by Jesus. Different Lazarus. And was laid at his gate, covered with sores. So this guy, this poor Lazarus guy, is laid right there. He's covered in sores. Verse 21. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Pathetic, right? It's quite a contrast. And why the dogs and the crumbs are initiated in this thing is because, like you and I, when we go eat, we always have napkins, right? They have napkins. They would use bread as napkins. And once they wiped their hands, clean them, they would throw the bread over and the dogs would eat the crumbs. The man there wants to eat the crumbs even. He's so hungry. He wants those crumbs. Let's read on. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now, do you remember when Jesus said to the thief that repents, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus is talking about Abraham's bosom. It's paradise. This is before Jesus dies and rises from the dead. Nobody could get to heaven because no one was forgiven of sins. They were, sins were just covered. Now watch. Now he's going, Jesus is opening up our world here to this. So this man is taken to Abraham's bosom after he dies. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes because the rich man also died. 
The rich man's in Hades. Lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Hmm. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Do you think it's bad down there? It's pretty bad when you just want a little bit of water to relieve you. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So now you find out in this place in Abraham's bosom, there is a good side and there's a bad side. And there's a massive valley fixed in between. And those who died in faith are on one side in paradise, Abraham's bosom. But the other ones who didn't, they didn't believe, have faith, they're in Hades. And they will stay in Hades until the lake of fire and brimstone. But there's believers down there waiting. Verse 27, I think I'm at, yeah. And he said, this is the man, Lazarus the rich man, because he's, he's, in, he's in Hades. Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Hell is the place where the most evangelists are dwelling in eternity, guys. Because they now know. They now know that everything was true. And they wish they could go back and warn their family of what hell is all about. But Abraham said... They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, 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 Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Really? And Jesus said, or he says, Abraham says, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Pretty wild, huh? And Jesus would rise from the dead. And many wouldn't be persuaded. But the point I want to bring out here is there was a big divide. When someone died in faith, they went there, and there was a massive divide between where the people of faith are and the people who didn't have faith. And then when Jesus dies and rises from the dead, and he blows that tomb, he takes a host captive. And he takes all those people that have been waiting, because now there's forgiveness of sins. And now a person could go to heaven, but before that, they couldn't. But here, here's my point. That big divide, there's a big divide, but there's a big divide at the Jordan River. And there was a big divide for us and God, and that thing was sin, was it not? And the Jordan River, in one sense, is a picture of this massive divide that needs to be divided because we can't get across because of our sins, amen? We could not have fellowship with God because of our sins, now think about Jesus on the cross. On the cross, there's that moment when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what is going on in that moment with that terminology? The, the thing that's happening is Jesus, because he's carrying our sins, because there's a big divide from between us and God, he's carrying our sins. Now Jesus in that moment is divided from the Father, is he not? Because he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in carrying our sins, he's taken our place. He becomes this person here. 
because he's trying to open up the divide. But here's what's amazing about that. As he suffers separation from the Father, non-fellowship with the Father, he's, think about him still on the cross. And as he progresses that day on the cross, six hours, he finally comes to that moment when he says these words, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Remember that? Now think about that. He goes from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who's he talking to? The Father, right? Separation. But at the very end, he goes, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He's gone from separation, then he did the job, it is finished, then he goes back to, Father, I'm trusting you. And he goes back into relationship with the Father. Did you ever catch that before? All in those hours on that cross. He opens up the door for you and I. He opens up fellowship for you and I to be able to fellowship with God. But it gets better. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? And at the moment that he dies, do you remember what happens the moment he dies? The moment he dies, the veil, what happens to the veil in the temple? It rips from bottom top or top to bottom? Top to bottom. That's right. The very moment Jesus dies. Now, do you know how big and thick that veil is, was? It's 30 by 60 feet, and it's 10 inches thick. It took 300 priests to lift it up and put the thing in place. And the moment Jesus dies, it rips from top to bottom. Now, wait a minute here. If you're a priest in the temple, and you know you can't go into the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, only one priest a year can go in there, and they better be right before God, huh? And they're going to go in there and sprinkle that blood. And if you're in there and that veil rips top to bottom, are you kind of freaking out a bit? Yeah, because you know, oh my gosh, I could die because I can't go in the presence of God. But it rips, and, it, and, and the significance is it's open house. That Jesus just paid the price, and he divides the divide, and now we can have relationship with God. And we don't even have to go to Jerusalem three times a year to the temple. We can meet with God anywhere, like here in Narco. Any amens to that one? Or even when you wake up in the morning and drive to work, you can meet God anywhere you want to, because he, he divided the great divide. Now, I'm getting pumped up, so here we go. Let's go back to Joshua. Now look at verse 16. We'll continue these themes here. Verse 16 says, That the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. Is that awesome or what? A great Somebody say, I'll get good, good. Yeah. A great distance away at Adam. Say Adam. The city that is beside Zarephan. Those which are flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah. The Arabah is another name for the Dead Sea. Which, you know, the Salt Sea. We're completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. So here's what happened. Here's the what. The water begins to divide. The priests step in. The ark's there. It's a picture of Jesus. It separates the divide. The divide is divided, and they're in that water now. Now, there's a place upstream where the water stops. The place is called what again? Adam. Say Adam. Now, now the water there, because remember, it's flood season, it's flowing down, and the water stopped. As the water's flowing down, it stops at Adam. What's going to happen to all that water? It's not going to flood that way. It's rising up in a heap. Have you ever thought about that? The water's rising up in a heap. Doesn't that shock anybody besides me? I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. Now, so the water parted, and remember in verse 7, God told Joshua that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. When he was with Moses, the Red Sea parted, right? And now he's exalting Joshua because the Jordan River's parting. And don't you think this might be a bigger miracle than the Red Sea because the water's heaping up up there? 
I think it's an even a bigger, bigger miracle. Now, let me give you some, um, some sidebars on this one here. First sidebar, the water divided from the water. Did it not? How many times have we seen in Scripture the water divide from the water? We know right here at the Jordan, we also know at the Red Sea, but we also know in the Genesis creation record that the water divides from the water and the land begins to be, to be exposed. Remember that one? So the water divides from the water. That's three times we see it right there. But here's the sidebar I want to give you. If you're in Jericho and you're one of the spy or one of the lookouts in the city, because you're right there by Jericho now, and you see and you can see the water drying up and what's going on and maybe upstream you can see miles up there, you see the water. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? We're, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Oh my gosh, look at this. Now, by the way, from Adam to, to the Dead Sea, the, the place where there's no more water in the Jordan River, 20 miles. 20 miles. Why so wide of a gap of no water, of, of dry land? Because there's 2 million people have to cross. That's a lot of people, huh? That's a lot, a lot of people. Now, and remember... If you remember before, how far is the ark out in front of them as they were traveling? Oh, no, we're not there yet. Oh, my gosh, I'm thinking ahead of you. Don't, just forget I said that, okay? But you got, we did talk about that, though, yeah. Yeah, we did. It's going to be how far out in front? Ten football fields. So you need this wide gap. You need the, it's ten football fields. You need enough area for two million people to see it and to cross. Because if it's only a little place like this, my gosh, it'll take like months to get across that thing. But they're going to cross in one day. Now, number three in your notes, and that's this. Christ bore the judgment of all sins, even original sin. I like this one. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence. I, I just cannot believe it's a coincidence in Scripture. But the waters divide, and they're backed up, you know, going upstream. The waters are going down to the Dead Sea, and so it's all dried up. But it's backed up. The big heap is at a city called What? Louder? Adam. Adam. Uh, I think this is a major theological issue that God is putting before us here. And it could be argued, but don't argue with me. Okay, no. <laughs> Look at Romans 5. Some of you know where I'm going on this. Romans 5. If you ever want to read one of the greatest theological, philosophical uh, di- put together an argument. Read Romans, man. Paul's brilliant. Now watch this. Because remember, the point is, Christ bore the judgment of all sins, even original sin. The original sin of Adam. Verse 12, chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man, say one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Guys, when it says death, Death means separation from God for all of us. Death means corruption in this world. This world, there are beautiful places, but this is nothing compared to what it looked like. There's corruption. Things go from order to disorder. Your lawn must be mowed and edged. Any amens? Things go from order to disorder. God holds things together, but you see these evidences of of, uh, entropy in this world. Now, entered into the world. And death through sin. So death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who is to come. Here it is. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, that's Adam, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. We are in this mess of a world. You and I struggle with righteousness versus sin in our personal life because one man, through one man, sin enters into the world and everything came spread to all of us. But it also, and, and by the way, by the way, let me make somebody mad in the room here or online. I know I'll make the culture mad, but it's, I could prove it to you biblically. Did it say a man and a woman? But all we read about is Eve in there taking that fruit, huh? She took the mango. It was a mango. No, I don't know what it was. <laughs> doesn't say her does it it says one man in fact the new testament paul even writes and gives us theology on that he says look it was adam who sinned eve was completely deceived adam sinned now let me tell you one of the ramifications or one of the evidence of that and i could show it to you in genesis but that's not my teaching tonight it doesn't say eve it says adam they're a married couple that's called the headship men you're the head. Now, don't go all in the culture because I know we're so skewed by the culture. Oh, you're saying we're not equal. Just, you know, I love you. Shut up, okay? Stop. Just stop with that. When Adam sees Eve for the first time, I'll give you the equals in marriage. He looks at her and he goes, at last. That's what he says. But he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We're equals in marriage, right? But when you come over here, and then in Genesis 2, if I, could back, if I went there, I could show you where Adam is the head. And he is the head. He is the leader. He is the protector. He is these things. In our dumb, crazy, upside-down world that says, you ladies, you don't need a husband, you don't need a man, you don't need anything like that, it really is setting women up to be hurt and wounded is all it's doing because it's trying to eliminate men from the equation is what it's doing. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it because it's so unbiblical. Now, headship for men. This does not mean you walk away going, I'm the head of the family. You can shut up on that one right there. I don't think there's any woman going to sit there and take that from you. Okay. But you have to be a biblical man because for you to have authority, you must be under authority of Jesus Christ, Right? To have any of your jobs. If you have authority in your job, you have authority because you're under the authority of the owner or somebody, right? Yeah. To have authority, you must be under authority. That's a biblical principle, and it works in the world too. And, it, and it's specifically true in marriage. Husbands, my wife will, will follow my lead, but we discuss things, and we don't just, you know, it's a big deal like that. But she trusts me because she sees that I try my best to be under the headship of Jesus Christ. It's not me. And as a man, I must lay down my life for what's best for her. 
And I've got to do those things. And if a woman sees that in a husband, women, you'll follow that guy to the end. of the, He'll drive you over a cliff. You go, and you'll go, yee! You know, you'll follow him everywhere. Because you know he's got your best interest. And, but that's headship. That's headship. But the world will scream at headship and say, oh, you're just trying to oppress women. It's a war against women. No, it's not. It's a biblical pattern that we are called to live by. Any amens on what I'm talking about right now? It wasn't even in my notes. This is a free one, guys. I don't even know where I'm at anymore. Um, oh, okay. So, so it's, it's Adam. Adam. So it goes back to all the original sin. The waters heat back up all the way to Adam. Now, one more thing about uh, uh, this, this text. Go back here to Joshua. About I, I need to show you this because just to, I just got to do this. Um, now look back at, uh, let's go to J- Exodus chapter 12. I really took you on a wild goose chase there, so I'm kind of, I went off note. Look at Exodus 12. And when you're there, stand there. Okay, now, <clears throat> this is the night before they leave Egypt. This is when the Passover begins. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month, shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Stop. You might want to jot this down in your Bible so you don't forget this. This is where God now institutes a religious calendar. They have had a civil calendar all this time. But now they have another calendar. They both, they have them both. But this is the religious calendar. And the religious calendar begins in April. That's when the religious calendar begins, okay? So that's what that's talking about there. Um, which, by the way, no, I don't have time. Um, Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, so if it's April, it's April 10th, right? Okay, good. They are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Now, what day did they pick the lamb? Louder? April 10th. Okay, let's go over to Joshua again. Now, quickly just look over at uh, about when they, they cross. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. When do they cross? Which is? April 10th. Isn't that interesting? I just wanted to give you that, okay? Just for you. It's just a free one right there. Okay, now. So they cross on April 10th, coinciding with the night that they picked the lamb, April 10th, okay? Back when they're still in Egypt. Now, let me give you some more little specifics on the lid, because this will make, make sense. That lid... Uh, I'm sorry, on the, on the ark. The ark is like a little coffin. You know that, right? It's, it's overlaid in gold. And the lid of the, of the ark is called the mercy seat. When they would go into the holiest of holies once here with the blood of the lamb, they'd sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat. That top, that little lid on there, that's called the propitiation or satisfaction. Okay, say propitiation. Now, very important, keep your marker right here. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm moving you around a lot, but do it. First John 2, because I think you guys want to learn, right? Yes. Okay, good. I'm glad somebody said yeah. 
Now, look at 1 John, way to your right, chapter 2. Remember, propitiation is that top part of the ark where they sprinkle the blood. That's the satisfaction. Where sin would be covered for one year. Remember that? It was not cleansed, it was covered, right? Because it's animal blood. Now, look at chapter, chapter 2 of 1 John, and it says, My little children, verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Say advocate. That's a, that's a defense attorney. That's a lawyer. That's someone defends you in court. Is advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is our what? Our defense attorney, right? Don't forget that. I'll get back to that in a second. Now, verse 2, and he himself is the what? Say it. Propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. So Jesus he is now the New Testament satisfaction, propitiation, of which the, the priest would sprinkle the blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But in that, it's his blood forgiving us of our sins, but he's also our defense attorney, correct? Yes. And since he's our defense attorney, guess when he's arguing for us? Always, because he's ever interceding for you before the Father. Any amens on that? So every time the devil accuses you here on earth, you know how he pummels your head sometimes, anybody? Jesus Christ is in position up there with the Father saying, nope, 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 that's my kid down there. He's ever interceding for you and I. Is that a good deal or what? It never ends, man. And we know that Revelation says the devil, he accuses us day and night. But Jesus is before the Father interceding day and night. He's right there arguing our case. We're under the blood of Jesus. Amen to that one, guys? Now, okay, let's, let, 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 me, let, let me give you one more thought. Go back to... We're not done moving around either. One more thought on the ark. Okay, the ark's going in. I think this is so cool. The ark's going in. What's inside the ark? The Ten Commandments, yeah. The showbread, Aaron's staff, rod that budded, almonds came to life, right? So you're going to find he is the priest. Okay. So the ark is going across. So inside there, is the law, the Ten Commandments. What's outside the ark? All the people. Do you ever think about that? And what separates the law from all the people is the top, the lid, where the blood is sprinkled. The separation. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. See, if there was no sprinkled blood, if Jesus didn't die, then the law would condemn us all day long and twice on Sunday, right? But there is a separation right here. There's a mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. He's that picture. So the law doesn't condemn us because even though we sin and break the law, it doesn't condemn us because the blood of Jesus. Am I making sense? There's a separation right there. And what a beautiful picture, right? That that's, a, that's what we can walk in, this reality of the redemption of Christ. Now, let me give you the last thought. This is the last thought. Let's get back to the idea of the impassable, impassable river. You can't pass through. It's just overflowing. It's high. You ever get to a place in your life where you feel like the river's about this far and you're just going to sink? That there's no way to get past this thing? Anybody? We've all been there, right? We're going to be there again one day. It's, it's, it's life. It's a corrupt world. About two weeks ago, and keep this in mind, about two weeks ago, I asked you, when you go through difficult situations, I mean really high water situations, you know, do you still walk in faith or do you start to doubt and walk in unbelief? Because that's the question, huh? Which one am I going to walk in? 
Do I look with anticipation? Oh, God, you're going to do something? Or am I just bummed? Now, let me show you something that I think is so cool. These are last thoughts here. There's a mistake in your notes. I caught the typo today. It should say Genesis 42, not 43. But let's go to Romans chapter 8 first. Romans 8. Now watch this. Verse 28. And I think some of us instantly, we know that verse. Romans 8, 28 is a very popular New Testament verse. Watch this. And we know that God causes all things. How many things? All things. To work together for what? For good. To those who love God? We love God, right? Mm -hmm. To those who are called according to His purpose. Hmm. So right here we find that all things work together for good, huh? Okay. Let's go to Genesis 42. Is your last verse. Genesis 42. This is Jacob. And he's all sad. Because he's losing kids. At least he thinks he is. Chapter 42, verse 36. Watch, watch what Jacob says. Because he believes he's lost Joseph and now they want to take Benjamin and back to Egypt. He says, Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more because he's being held prisoner by Joseph back in Egypt. And you would take Benjamin? Now watch what he says. All these things are against me. Okay. Here's our question, and I'll leave it for you tonight. When you go through tough times, I go through tough times, the water's up to here, which one are we going to do? All things work together for good? Or all these things are against me. Which way do you go? Which way do you go? Because that's going to determine your future and your next steps. Do you want to go with, my God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All these things work together for good. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the imagery here of salvation. Thank you for the contrasting, God, and the comparisons between the Jordan and between the Red Sea. Thank you for all of it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you this night. Take care of everyone on the way home. I pray this teaching blessed people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.